going to start a, a new subject today. <clears throat> Our promising God. It's a subject that we have done before. In times are such, and the trials are such, I determined that it would be encouraging for us to uh, go through it again. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 is our basic text, though we will be using many verses as we go through this. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. For He is faithful that promised. Is the subtitle for today's beginning session. Our God is a promising, a covenanting God. The distinctions between promising and covenanting are probably genuine, but there's not that big a difference uh, in them. The promise is a covenant of sort, but uh, the main difference being that the promise is usually made from one person to another person, and a covenant is made between two, between two people or, or more. <clears throat> but is, the issue is still the same, the truth of what's being done, what's being covenanted, and what's being promised, and the honor and integrity of the people that are making. Our God is a covenanting, promising God. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 15, right along there, those few verses, God initiates the covenant. But He imposed before that the covenant of works on Adam and on Eve. And so uh, we see God from the very first in Scripture covenanting. The the covenant that He made in Genesis 3.15, you see Him passing that down uh, all the way down through uh, the history of Uh, of the Old Testament, the history of the Old Covenant, he passed that covenant down because it contained the the, uh, New Covenant within its bounds. And the New Covenant was not brought into effect, however, although it, it was there in the background until Christ came and wrought redemption for His people. Certainly we, His people, have need of a promising God, a covenanting God. Now I want us to notice in particular uh, one aspect of our promising God uh, as we begin. And that is uh, why believers hold fast their profession. It's declared in uh, the last phrase of our text, He is faithful that promised. 
Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promise. I think I have another sermon with this text about the apostasy. Many, 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 many people do not hold fast their profession of faith. But that is not God's fault. Never is it God's fault. God is faithful that promised. And God has wrought a perfect salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever people profess and then turn aside, it's not because there's any weakness in God. It's not because the way of salvation is feeble. It is that they do not really believe. When they turn aside, they did not really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever they think, whatever they feel, whatever they tell you has no bearing whatsoever. God is faithful. God has an elect sheep in this world. And they're all going to be saved. Every last one of them. And there's always a lot of goats mixed in with the sheep. And those are the ones who profess and fall away and, and do not continue to believe. However, I would add a hopeful note if any of you feel like you might be in that condition or in danger of that condition. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Say, well, but I've made such a fool and made big out of being a Christian and so forth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And you assuredly will not be saved if you do not. I just saw my wife look at me. I remembered she told me, be sure and tell the church that Brother Turney said to tell the church here that he loves us and loves us and misses being here. So when uh, Patty talks to his wife, he always sitting in the background is adding things uh, as uh, they're talking. Both Old Testament and New Testament present Jehovah as the faithful God. We'll start back in Deuteronomy. In chapter 20, no, chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. And then, for another one from the Old Testament, actually there's three or four more, but uh, jump to uh, Isaiah chapter 49. In verse 7, 
Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee. <clears throat> the whole passage, uh, much of it is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's involved in that. God declares that He is faithful, and the Lord that He is talking about is going to be faithful. And now go, we'll go back to Psalms for a few places. Psalm 36, verse 5. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Trying to give some kind of a concept to our minds of how big and uh, all-encompassing God's faithfulness is he brings it up the heavenlies and the skies into it. Thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. In chapter 40, in verse 10. <clears throat> I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. I find it a happy thing, a joyful thing, a wonderful thing to have a salvation to tell men about that is a real salvation. Not like poor Armenians. All that, the best they can do is, is tell people to believe on Jesus and try real hard and maybe you'll make it. That's the best they can tell them. Because that's what their theology is. We, the gospel is a wonderful, wonderful bit of good news. Whoever believes it is saved and will be saved. will never be unsaved. Then 119. <clears throat> verse 89, verses 89 and 90. Forever, O Lord... Thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. No matter how many times we come back to the same verses or passages of Scripture for comfort or for remembrance or for whatever reason, they still stay the same. You can't wear them out. The same verse will comfort your soul a thousand times Amen. as you go back and meditate upon it and remember your faithful God who gave it. The same promises will always warm your heart. Then, in uh, Lamentations chapter 3, well, I won't even turn that. The only part I want is great is thy faithfulness. There were not very many cheering things in the book of Lamentations, 
it is almost all Jeremiah's grief and misery and sorrow being poured out. But this is one, one of the two or three cheering things. Great is thy faithfulness. He's not accusing God of causing the miseries because God is always faithful. And then in the New Testament, I'll point to several. <clears throat> First, First uh, Corinthians one, verse nine. <clears throat> God is faithful. Well, let me back up a little because this is a, a very good uh, little passage here. But uh, verse eight, verse seven. Hmm. I don't don't want to. I'll just go back to verse four to get the whole sentence. Thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by Him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called, unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Several times in several ways, the Apostle gives comforting statements concerning God keeping His people uh, in that place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And dear ones, do we not all know that there's nothing more common than temptation? But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. We can never blame God when we yield to temptation because there is His promise. When we are tempted, we need to go to God. Don't try to uh, go anywhere else. Go to God when you're tempted. And uh, trust in Him because He is faithful to His people. In First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 24, Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. I'll read verse 23. You'll give you a letter, better grip on the context. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. And then in Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse three, the Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. If you get into your concordance, you'll see there is no lack of 
of verses and passages declaring the faithfulness of God. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13, you will find the phrase, He abideth faithful. <clears throat> and then uh, finally in First John chapter one and verse nine. If we confess our sins, this is a very utilitarian verse. It commends to us something that we do, that we need to do, that we can do, and that we should do. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a blessed thing is the salvation of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No man is a believer who doesn't know and count that God is faithful. How can we trust Him if we do not reckon on His trustworthiness and His faithfulness? Again and again, we may have to stir up our souls by going back to verses such as these, because again and again we will have sore trials and Satan will try to put doubts in our minds. But the fact is that Scripture is always going to say the same thing because it's always true that God is faithful. Whether you're needing to confess sin or whether you're needing comfort or whatever, there's a promise for everything, for every human circumstance in the Scripture. Now, I can tell you right now, uh, the biggest and best one in there is Romans 8.28 because it covers everything. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. But you don't want to use just that one, although I know that some of us, besides myself, it's their primary one because we use it so often. All believers know that God is faithful. And the better we know it, the better believers we are becoming because we will be relying upon that faithfulness always. The more constant our walk, the more strong and lively our faith is. So we take this tack as our beginning concerning our promising God to draw out our faith in Him to Him. Our subject is primarily the faithfulness of our promising God today. Now, we'll be using other verses as we go and probably touch on some of those again as we go. <clears throat> our first head, our text, refers to our promising God as faithful in what could well amount to naming Him the faithful God, which He is called in several, several places in, in the New Testament. 
So I want us to look at some things in connection with God's faithfulness that should help us to rely upon His promises. What it means that God is faithful. First, God does not promise promise rashly. God does not promise rashly. Though a promise seemed to arise from some occasion, perhaps from some affront even, yet every promise stems from a purpose within God. There's a purpose in God's heart concerning every promise that He has made. He does not make promises rashly or hastily. God promised to destroy Israel if they wouldn't obey His Word. And He waited so long that Israel just really didn't believe it. Many of them didn't believe there was any God. So they took up with the idolaters. As though only anger and justice prompted His Word, we know from Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 and, and Romans 11 in those chapters that countless Gentiles of this age were purposed to be brought in from eternity. There's purpose behind every promise and every promise has its roots in eternity. It's not too far from where you are. In, go to Ephesians chapter 1. And you see uh, why I'm saying what I'm saying. Verse 11, In whom also in God, our God, our Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. There's purpose. Note that, that last phrase, who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Everything has a purpose behind it. A heavenly purpose. A purpose concerning God's glory and His greatness. Men may and do promise rashly, promise on the spur of the moment, but not God. God's promises are all certain. They're all fixed. They're not going to change, and He's not going to change in dealing with them. With God, every item of knowledge, real or possible, is present at every moment in all of time. No promises made without omniscience and omnipotence attending it. He knows everything. He can do everything. So he who knows everything does do everything concerning the promises that he makes. Secondly, God promises as He thinks. In Proverbs chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, 
Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye. Remember our point is that God promises as he thinks. Neither desire thou his dainty meats. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Men often promise what they never intend to perform. And this is lying, and nothing better than lying. A lying promise is more injurious in its nature than just a lie. Because you haven't just lied, you've made a promise. You've promised somebody something. Your whole character is at stake, actually, in that other person's mind concerning the promise that you made. A lie may be told concerning something that doesn't matter, but a promise is a covenant. A promise is a binding oath. That makes it much worse to give a lying promise because it is a it is a type of covenant. The promiser swears by his character. He's swearing by his personhood. The promises drawn promisee is drawn to expect some benefit, large or small, with great certainty because of the promise. The lying promise was meant to deceive, to take advantage of a man. A man may speak one way and think another, but God never does. God speaks as He thinks. God is all truth, and His promises are all true, and nothing but truth. His promises are all open and above board. Thirdly, God always remembers what He says. God never forgets. Unlike us. At my age, and uh, with Patty's having had a stroke, I think uh, I forgot is one of the most often said things (laughs) around our house. But God never forgets. Never. Ever. Not anything. All knowledge, all possible knowledge, is always present at all times in the mind of God. Everywhere. All of the time. Every second of eternity. Everything is in God's mind. All of the time. Perhaps we all know some very accommodating person who will promise to do so many things for so many people that they can't possibly remember all they are obliged for. And uh, a person like that is always uh, a likable person. but uh, And so uh, people who know them well don't... Uh, get too mad at them. They just know that uh, what they promised they were not possible to do or they may have forgotten it. The chief butler forgot his promise to speak favorably of Joseph after he was put back into his office. 
find that in Genesis chapter 40 and 41. But God doesn't forget. Not for a moment. He doesn't have a momentary blank spot like we can do any time uh, time of the day. A prophet invaded Jeroboam. Jeroboam's domain. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom when the kingdom of Israel divided. The northern kingdom came to be called Israel and many times it was called Ephraim and once in a while it was the, the northern kingdom was called by one or the other names of the tribes that it was composed of. A prophet invaded Jeroboam's domain one day with a grisly, far-reaching word from the Lord. The first Kings. Chapter 13. Verses 1 and 2. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah, by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he, the prophet, cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. Now this is just when the kingdom had divided. This was right after Solomon's time. And upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. I won't go ahead and read the interesting sign that followed. About 350 years passed. King succeeded evil king in the northern kingdom. Finally, during Hezekiah's reign, God destroyed the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. Destroyed Samaria altogether. The southern kingdom, Judah, went on. Hezekiah finished his years. Manasseh, the evil ruled and died. Then Josiah became king of Judah and instituted sweeping reforms, reaching even into the former northern kingdom of Israel. Who knows how long it had been since anyone had given a thought to that centuries-old prophecy of that old prophet. But, in 2 Kings, Chapter 23, we have this interesting declaration. Chapter 23, beginning at verse 15. At verse 14. Josiah is being an iconoclast, breaking in priests all of the images he could find. 
He's over in what was the northern kingdom. He cut down the groves and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made both that altar and the high place, he broke down and burned the high place and stamped it small to powder and burned the grove. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these words. 1 Kings 13, 1-5 that we read. I won't say that Josiah didn't know what he was doing. Because if you remember, during Josiah's time, when they were cleaning out the temple, they found the Word of God. They found the scrolls of the Word of God, and he began to read them, and uh, uh, wept and mourned and uh, confessed his sins and began in earnest to try to turn Israel back to God. So he might have read that part and that's what made him do that but God is the one who caused it to be done after 350 years nobody thinking about it most people not knowing about it God's prophecy that he prophesied was made to be fulfilled and of course it's not unusual in our Christian understanding of the scripture the Lord Jesus Christ was prophesied from Genesis 3.15. And ultimately, the glorious prophecy was fulfilled. The inspired psalmist points out God's faithfulness in uh, Psalm 111 and verse 5. He will ever be mindful of His covenant. And in verse 9, He hath commanded His covenant forever. <clears throat> and then, Psalm 105 and verse 8, He hath remembered His covenant forever, the word which He commanded to a thousand generations. This is our promising God. I encourage you to become acquainted with as many promises as uh, you, or your memory can hold, or at least remember what book they're in. <laughs> That's mostly what I do now. Uh, this also is in God's faithfulness. He never changes His mind. That's the fourth head. God never changes His mind. It's hard for us to think like that, isn't it? It's hard for us to even conceive of that. God never changes His mind. Whatever you may find in there, and you can find verses that makes it look like God has changed His mind. But God doesn't change His mind. God reveals part of His purpose and then later on He reveals another part of His purpose concerning the same thing. But it was all the same purpose from eternity. God never changes His mind. Man is so ignorant that He will make promises that were better not to keep. David vowed, had a mad fit because Naboth wouldn't send back a bunch of food for him and his... his uh, 
army that now it was now an army, not very big just then, became a lot bigger later. He got so mad he was going to go and swore an oath. He was going to go and wipe out Naboth and all of his. And that's when uh, Naboth's wife, when somebody ran in ahead and, and told her about it, she gathered up a bunch of food and carried it out to them. Well, David had no right to make that oath. He had no right to go and kill Naboth because he didn't send him food. I can't see in the Scripture where he could have justified that at all. <clears throat> so, man is so ignorant that he will make promises that were better not to keep. He will vow vows. He would sin worse in keeping than in breaking. Rash or hasty vows. First Samuel, I'm not going to turn there, but uh, 24 and 25 and 38 through 45, the uh, thing about Saul and Jonathan. Saul had... Uh, they were fighting a war that day that had initiated with Jonathan and his armor bearer. And uh, they fought a bunch of the uh, enemy and uh, put them on the run. And all Israel became encouraged. And they took out and the whole army took after them. And Saul had uh, the big army and Jonathan ultimately joined up with them. And Jonathan saw a piece of honeycomb on the ground. And he took his spear tip, stuck it in the honeycomb, and licked it off. Unknown to Jonathan, Saul had framed an oath in his foolish pride and vanity that no other soldiers were to eat anything that day so that he would get more glory or whatever his stupid reasoning was. But he vowed a vow. If anybody did eat, they should be killed. And so it comes out that uh, ultimately Jonathan is found to have, though he never heard the oath or knew about it, Saul was actually going to have his son killed under those circumstances. I equate that with the, also with Jephthah. He would have killed his son. Sadly, there wasn't anybody there with Jephthah to keep him from killing his daughter. But uh, he should have at least been a man about it and said, Lord, do what you want to me. I'm not going to kill my daughter. And that's what he should have done. I made a stupid vow. There are, there are people who don't believe that uh, he killed his daughter. I'm one of them that would like to believe that. And I read a book written by a Puritan, a whole book uh, on it. And he made some mighty good arguments. But the way it reads in Scripture, it looks like he killed his daughter. But he never should have vowed to vow like that. How stupid. Anything that would come out of his house, the first thing that come out of his house to meet him, he's going to kill well, it's more likely to be one of his children or his wife than anything else. Well, he didn't keep all the sheep in the house or the dogs or the cats. Maybe, probably. What I'm saying is people will vow vows that they'll sin worse in keeping them than in breaking them, as Saul with Jonathan. 
and there's Jephthah with his daughter. God never comes to be, never comes to be in a different mind than He is. Never. I mean, God's mind never changes. Eternally. We don't know anything about that. But we do know that it's true of God because His Word says that it is. Therefore, God never comes to be in a different mind. There are changes in God's dealings with His children, but not in His mind, not in His purpose, not in His promises to them. I will look this one up again in Psalm 89. It's concerning Christ. In verses 30 through 36. Just before, I'll start at verse. I'll start at verse twenty-eight. My mercy will I keep for him. He's talking about looking beyond David. Talking about Christ to come. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. My covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If His children forsake My law and walk not in My judgments, if they break My statutes and keep not My commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity the stripes. Nevertheless, My loving kindness will I not utterly take from Him nor suffer My faithfulness to fail. Some of that applies to David. Some of it applies to both David and Christ. My covenant will I not break nor alter the thing that has gone out of My lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed, that is believers, shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. And I can only attribute that in its extensiveness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifthly, there is then this about God's promises that should draw out, there is this then about God's promises that should draw out our reliance upon Him who promises. He performs what He promises. He does what He says He will do. He speaks as He thinks. In His mind is only pure eternal truth. He remembers what He says. As I say again, all things are always present before His mind at all times. And He never changes His mind. Joshua's testimony will be that of all of Christ's redeemed brethren. Joshua 23.14 Concerning God, Not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you. And not one thing hath failed thereof. So, for these essentials of faithfulness are all in all God's promises concerning salvation. They're everything to us. Faithfulness of God is everything to us concerning salvation. Because there are so many promises concerning salvation. <clears throat> 
Well, we are at our next head, and I'm loath to uh, start it. It's a fairly long one. Uh, we're close enough to time that I won't feel too bad for stopping a few minutes early. Heavenly Father, thank you now for your blessed word. Thank you for your blessed being, our God. Oh, our God, to mankind in general, you cannot exist. There cannot be a being like you. For all that we know, all that we know of sentient, reasoning beings tells us there cannot be. We're smarter than all the animals. They're very changeable. And we are very changeable also. But our God changes not. Men think they are the smartest thing there is. And they discount God altogether. And sadly, even thousands upon thousands of preachers suppose that God is not what He is. They suppose against His omnipotence. They suppose against His omniscience. And they teach their people so, the millions. They teach the many, many millions that they can be lost because God's plan of salvation, even though they say, what, which makes them look silly, that Christ paid for all of the sins in the whole world, they turn around to tell people who are allegedly saved that they can sin and be lost. And they do not even see this uh, wretched contradiction in the very basic concern of salvation. Have mercy, O God. Lord Jesus, bring a glorious revival throughout the world, calling many millions into the kingdom and giving a better view of the doctrine of the Word of God, the better view of your person, a better view of your work to many millions who labor in a swamp of mixed up, messed up, false theology. Have mercy, O God. Now go with us through this day and keep us, our God. Bless us to honor you and uh, as we... Uh, are dealing with whatever trials you have us under, whatever afflictions you have us under, and whatever others are coming. <clears throat> Help us to remember our promising God and His promises. Glory be to our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Christ's name, Amen. <clears throat>